Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We've been looking at the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta, which occurs 21 times in the text. Recall that it sounds like this. In this way, he abides contemplating body in the body internally, or he abides contemplating body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating body in the body, both internally and externally. He abides contemplating in body the nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in body the nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in body the nature of both arising and vanishing. Recollection that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and proficiency. He abides independent. He doesn't cling to anything in the world. This is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating body in the body. This week I want to look at how this refrain intersects with the various exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta to give this discussion a firm basis in practice. A primary task of the refrain is to quell the presumption of the existence of the substantial fixed self that causes each of us so many problems in our life. Now the presumed self now the presumed self has any or all of three facets. We might think we are a body, or we might think we are consciousness, something like a flashlight that scans the world, or we might think we are a mind, or maybe two of these or all three. So we take each facet of the self in turn first trying to quell the presumption of a body as a fixed substantial thing, then the consciousness, then the mind. I just recited the version of the refrain for quelling the body. We begin by contemplating body in the body internally. This is to look at what actual evidence is available that we can directly observe that might support the proposition that there exists a fixed substantial body that we call me. Each of the exercises considers a different source of evidence. In the Pali Discourse, the following are the areas of investigation represented in the body exercises. Breathing, the postures of the body, bodily actions, the parts of the body, the elements as they're found in the body, and there are nine exercises concerned with the 
investigation of corpses in various stages of decay. Each exercise presents an alternative assemblage of internal evidence, either directly perceived or visualized, for the presumption of the body as a kind of thought experiment that reveals the tenuousness of the presumption of a substantial self in its facet as body. Let's take the posture exercise as an example. Again, bhikkhus, when walking, a bhikkhu understands, I am walking. When standing, he understands, I am standing. When sitting, he understands, I am sitting. When lying down, he understands, I am lying down. Or he understands accordingly, however his body is disposed. Repeated internal contemplation reveals that the observed evidence is actually fragmentary, situation-specific, and ever-changing. It is discovered that the external presumption of a substantial body adds no information to what is directly observed, and in fact appears as an unwarranted abstraction. The evidence fails to support the presumption. We like to start with an intellectual understanding, and even that is often beyond the yogi's grasp. So let me offer a very close analogy to non-self that is easier to appreciate. Non-nation. A nation, like a self, is easy to endow with substantial existence, which is sustained by the many narratives that turn around the nation. It occupies a territorial landscape with defined borders. It prints currency, enacts laws, punishes offenders to these laws. It has an economy, a GDP, an army, nameless bureaucrats. It has a population within its borders. It is the object of pride and even the sacred object of salutation and song. Caught in narration, we appropriate our nation patriotically as me or mine and may be willing to die for our nation. But what is the evidence that there is such a thing outside of the stories we tell about it? One can easily devise exercises to contemplate evidence for the substantial existence of the nation in analogy with the Satipatthana exercises for the self. Watch a farmer milking his cow as a manifestation of the economy facet. Or walk to the frontier to discover a falling-down border marker as a manifestation of the territorial facet. I think we will find no evidence that convinces us that the nation is anything more than a shoddy product of imagination and convention. The key difference between non-nation and non-self is that we know from the outset that the nation was made up conceptually at first in the minds of a committee of founders 
and subsequently through the declarations of various states' people. We hereby declare that the land of Flabobia extends from the western shore to the eastern mountaintops. The self is similarly made up, but largely below the radar. I hope this analogy might serve to acquire an intellectual grasp of non-self. No evidence convinces us that the nation is anything more than a shoddy product of imagination and convention. Moreover, we can also observe in the case of the nation how the presumption of a substantial existence, not substantial existence itself, but the presumption, conditions many narratives and thereby actions in accord with these narratives, so that, one, we become increasingly convinced of its substantial existence, and two, we appropriate the nation as me and mine. For instance, new border walls, restrictions on immigration, and mandatory teaching of a single language makes nations look more and more like they really do substantially exist, with clear demarcations between nations. We then fight, conquer, and die for that nation. We do something similar with the self to our peril. The feeling exercise. Feelings, weighed in na, are generally regarded as hedonic tone encompassing the three factors of pain, pleasure and neither pain nor pleasure. Sometimes extended to differentiate between physical and mental pain and pleasure or worldly and spiritual pain and pleasure. The feeling exercise of the Satipatthana Sutta reads as follows. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, when experiencing a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands, I experience a pleasant feeling. When experiencing a painful feeling, he understands, I experience a painful feeling. When experiencing a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I experience a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. When experiencing a worldly pleasant feeling, when experiencing an unworldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I experience an unworldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We've seen earlier that in the early texts, feeling is clearly described as a facet of self alongside body and mind, as a stand-in for self as consciousness. However, in contrast to their prominent role in early texts, feelings are often marginalized in modern teaching and scholarship, so their standing as a facet of self might seem tenuous. In fact, Vedana is a gerund of the verb Vedati, sense, know, or experience, and hence literally means experiencing or consciousness. Although the examples seem to be limited to immediate, simple valuation of interest or mattering, this factor is in fact the guiding principle behind the unfolding of the entire world of experience. For the Buddha, 
All things come together in feelings. Its causal influence is described as follows. With contact as a condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions, and notions born of mental proliferation beset a man. We experience something as mattering, and then that becomes the site of further perception and reflection. As new percepts arise, those that matter are pursued in a way that the world, loca, of experience, what we take to be reality unfolds as a reflection of our interests, as a manifestation of feeling. Experience is awareness of something, the sky, the moon, a cup, and therefore can be taken as evidence for an unseen experiencer, a consciousness in relation to that something. This presumed experiencer is, is a facet of the presumed self. It is in this way that the feelings are identified with the self. Moreover, feelings provide a simple set of distinctions that are useful in deconstructing this facet of self. The early texts actually give us a detailed description of the process of applying primary analysis to feeling including the steps of internal analysis, contemplation of impermanence, and external analysis, in a more explicit way than found in the Satipatthana Sutta itself. Now, Ananda, one who says, feelings are myself, should be told, there are three kinds of feelings, friend, pleasant, painful, and neither pleasant nor painful. Which of the three do you consider to be yourself? When a pleasant feeling is felt, no painful or neither pleasant nor painful feelings are felt, but only pleasant feelings. When a painful feeling, when a painful feeling is felt, no pleasant or neither pleasant nor painful feeling is felt, but only a painful feeling. And when neither pleasant nor painful feelings are felt, no pleasant or painful feelings. Pleasant feelings are impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, bound to decay, to vanish, to fade away, to cease, and so too are painful feelings, and neither pleasant nor painful feelings. So anyone who, on experiencing a pleasant feeling, thinks, this is myself, must, at the cessation of that pleasant feeling, think, myself is gone, and the same with painful and neither pleasant nor painful feelings. Thus, whoever thinks feelings are myself is contemplating something in this present life that is impermanent, a mixture of happiness and unhappiness, subject to arising and passing away. Therefore, it is not fitting to maintain, feelings are myself. Since feelings give rise to perceptions in the rest of what constitutes the world we are conscious of, 
it is inadequate in overturning the presumption of consciousness as a fixed whole to demonstrate the fragmentary, situation, specific, and ever-changing nature of feeling narrowly understood, since these qualities will be shared by whatever they give rise to. Nonetheless, the aggregates exercise of the fourth Satipatthana carries this thought experiment to its conclusion through internal contemplation of all five levels of experience, form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and cognizance. The next exercise is the third Satipatthana, contemplation of mind, Chitanupassana. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind in the mind? Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. He understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands composed mind, that is a mind in samadhi, as composed mind and uncomposed mind as uncomposed mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. Mind is citta in Pali, a term used rather informally in the discourses as something that assumes different qualities as, at different times. For example, lust, delusion, kindness, serenity, agitation, samadhi, or even liberation. Or as something to be tamed, guarded, directed, purified in practice, or as something that can cause problems for us. Although the language around mind might encourage us to take it as something substantial and equate it with the self, the exercise breaks it down into a series of impermanent states or qualities, much as the body is broken down into parts, elements, postures, actions, and stages to demonstrate its insubstantiality. Next week, we'll conclude this discussion of body in the body internally and externally by looking once again at the fourth Satipatthana. The fourth Satipatthana does not correspond to a facet of the self, and this is problematic for interpreting the refrain consistently. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org 
slash Chintita. That is S-I-T-A-G-U dot org, C-I-N-T-I-T-A.